If you have your Bibles, please open them up. We're ready for Colossians chapter 3 today. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to um, borrow one of ours. So if you don't mind, raise your hand. Michael, bring you a Bible. If you don't own a Bible, please keep that. That's our gift to you. And um, just bring it until you can get your own new fancy Bible. But in the meantime, that one will work. So I've been trying to walk through this for a couple of weeks, so I hope we're learning. You know, I ask a lot of questions when I preach, but I think today it's actually exceptionally a lot of questions. So be ready. I'm going to ask a lot of questions today. If um, Don't worry if you get the wrong answer. I only um, hit you a couple times and throw things at you. But it's just intended to keep you awake and keep you engaged. So um, the first one is that the book of Colossians breaks into an outline of three different things. Chapter one is the truth about... Okay, that's where you answer. Chapter one is the truth about the... About the Christ, about Jesus. Chapter two is the truth about the cults. And chapter three and four is the truth about the Christian or the truth about you. So chapter one, who is Jesus? Chapter two, warning about the cults that that try to tell you Jesus is somebody else. Chapter three is how do you then apply this information to your life? The truth about you and the truth about me. Last week, and I noticed there's some empty seats in here today, because last week I warned you guys and I gave you fair warning that chapter three of Colossians deals with sin. So guess what we're going to talk about today? Sin. So I told folks, hey, just be, be warned. And then, you know, the, so all you guys are good, right? It's the folks that are living in sin that didn't want to come back and hear it today. So they're not here. But so I'm, I'm preaching to the choir today. I understand that. But we're just going to deal with And the, the nice thing about one of the things about being a preacher who, who just goes chapter by chapter, verse by verse, is I never have to worry about, you know, aiming my sermon at somebody's sin or someplace in your life that we just teach what that chapter teaches. Next week, we'll be in chapter four. Read ahead. Actually, we're not going to quite get to chapter four. So here's a warning for ladies for next week. Chapter three, verse 18. This is where we're going to start next week. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So if you can't handle that, then, then don't come back next week, wives. And no, I'm just kidding. You better be here for that. Um, where we're going to talk about submitting. That's going to take a whole week in itself. So we're going to, so we're going to, we're going to spend a week on you. I was, I was trying to decide if I needed to rebaptize you when you showed up today. You haven't been here like in weeks. You say it's the flu, but I'm just, I'm not sure. So actually, remember when we taught this, when we were going through Ephesians, you did, you did help me teach that chapter, husband submit to your wife. So maybe we'll tag team it next week. Um, all right, but that's next week. So today we're dealing with a couple topics. Um, one of which is taking off sin and putting on righteousness. Um, you know, there's a couple chapters in the Bible that we, we call that are dedicated to a certain topic. So, for example, trivia today, um, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we call that the love chapter. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, or I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter 11, we call that the faith hall of fame or the faith chapter. So, um, 1 Corinthians 13, love chapter. Hebrews chapter 11, faith chapter. It's all about love. It's all about faith. Well, whenever I wanted a chapter about heaven or about eternal perspective... Somebody say eternal perspective. I would always 
my go-to was Colossians 3. And I just, you know, I just kind of want to tell somebody. If I was telling somebody about heaven, I'd say, oh, go read Colossians 3. That's, it's about heaven. It's about having eternal perspective. And really, as I've been, and it is, but as I've been studying through it today, I just want to say today, it's so much more than that. There's really so much more that Paul covers. Really, only the first four verses have to do with heaven. But they are an important four verses. So we get to heaven and then we get to the sin. So there is some encouragement. Now, as you guys know, um, one of the things we, we talk about, we highlight as we teach through the epistles with the Apostle Paul, is that the Apostle Paul was the greatest mind that God ever created. He was used more of God than really any other person as far as I'm concerned in human history. He wrote 14 books out of 27 books recorded for us in the New Testament. Paul was an egghead. Paul was a mastermind of literature. And his writings and his literature far surpass anything that we've seen in human history. Including, you know, all the ones that that the literary greats grave over. Don't compare in literary comparison to the things that Paul wrote and recorded for us in human history. And, And the nice thing about Paul, the amazing thing about Paul is a guy that, you know, certain people. Do you know somebody that's just really, really, really smart? And they just process everything that way, life that way? I tell you guys oftentimes about our professor in Bible college. His name was Pastor Bob. Lydia's dad would call him, coined him the smartest man in Yucca Valley. And that was what everybody knew him as, the smartest man in Yucca Valley. Because he was just that type of, he's very intellectual. And so um, Bible college students, for two years, we tried to get him to answer a question with yes or no. And for two years, nobody could succeed. So you'd come up with some crazy stuff and you'd have like a red solo cup in your hand. You'd go, hey, Bob, Bob, Bob. And you try to get him like off guard. Hey, Bob, is that cup red? And he'd say, well, the chemical makeup of the rainbow, which includes the dyes that are in the, like, that's the way he'd answer questions. His mind would just process and he'd tell you the scientific reason for red. And you could never get him just to say yes or no. And and Paul, no doubt, had such an intellect that he processed that way. But on the flip side of that, what was cool about Paul is that he also had a real practical side. Like he could take something And he could um, numb it down or he could make it relatable so that we could understand it. And that's what chapter three and four is about. Like we got a lot in chapter one and two and and it was good too, but it was a lot of doctrine, a lot of theology. Now in here in three and four is how do you apply it to your life? How does it change your life? You know, we can know all these, these facts about life, about God, but if we can't apply them to our lives in wisdom, then it doesn't help us to, to live a godly life to walk after the things that God's told us. So that's what we get in chapter three. And Paul's going to begin the therefore section um, with a, a focus on heaven. So the first thing Paul wants to do is he wants to take your mind, your attitude, and he wants to point you to heaven. Okay, so let's look at verses one through four. Paul says, if then... And that could be since, and that word if in the, in the Greek participle, is, it can be translated sometimes in the Bible, if, and sometimes since. So maybe better translated here, since then, you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For you died, that's a fact. You're like, wait, I didn't die, I'm still sitting here. Well, if you didn't die, that's the problem. You better die to yourself. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also appear with him in glory. So the first thing in verse um, number two, he says, set your mind on what? Everybody set your mind on things above, 
So, so how often does God want you to set your mind? Now, when he says, set your mind on things above, what's he talking about? The stars, this ugly ceiling. Like I'm supposed to look at the ceiling and count the dots or something. What are you talking about? Set your mind up things above. He's talking about obviously heaven and he wants you to set your mind on heaven. Okay. So, so do you think the biblical prescription for this is every once in a while? Maybe you should guys should get out your calendars on your iPhones or whatever you got. If you got a cheaper brand, then you can, you know, if you got a subpar brand, if you got a Samsung or something, it might work. Um, you, you get out your, your, your calendar and let's just pick a day, the 27th day of every month at four o'clock, we're going to think about heaven from four to five. Is that, is that God's intention that every once in a while you ponder heaven and you know, you think, Oh, what am I going to do when I get there? Play a harp for eternity. How boring. I hope that's not you. Farthest thing from the truth. You know, I'm going to ride a shooting star through the galaxy. Now you're getting closer. You know, something that you're going to do for eternity. Really, when he says this, he's talking about every day, every moment that, that really your head is in the clouds. You know, some people, the enemy might say, and I've heard this, you know, you Christians are so heavenly minded, you can't be any earthly good. And the reality is, you find a Christian who's heavenly minded, that's the only way you can be earthly good. You find a Christian who's heavenly minded, and I bet you they're doing big things for Jesus. I bet you they're really on fire and really tearing it up. If you can keep your mind in the clouds, if you can keep your mind on heaven, it's a recipe for success in your Christian walk. Somebody say, what? Like, that's big. That's serious. Like, this is the truth. I mean, the Bible says you want to be successful and prosperous in all your ways. These are, these are like mic drops on, in, in certain places in the Bible. God says, meditate on the word of God day and night, and you will be prosperous and have good success in all that you do. And we read that, and the mic doesn't drop. But here's another one. Keep your mind on things above, and, and, and you will be a successful Christian. You'll walk, and this is God's heart for you. What did Jesus say about in Sermon on the Mount? Matthew six thirty three. Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Where, where rust doesn't destroy, where moth don't eat, where thieves don't break in and steal. So there's this concept about you as a Christian that you're supposed to store up treasures in heaven. You're supposed to keep your mind in heaven. I like, I like what um, John tells us about this in 1 John chapter 3. John says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We have a hope in heaven. We have a hope in the return of Jesus. And if you live every day with your head in the clouds and hoping that Jesus is going to come back, it purifies how you live. How are you going to live tomorrow and today if you really believed in your life that Jesus could come back at any moment? How many of you guys want to get caught with your hand in the cookie jar when that happens? So you keep your hand out of the cookie jar if you really believe in heaven. Now, for me, the way that I do it, the way that I try to self-motivate, and, and really, and I'm not just making this stuff up, guys, and I'm not talking cliche. I'm talking real, real, true, valuable stuff to my walk as a Christian, is that I, I, I believe the reality, and I'm going to ask you, challenge you today, do you believe that there is a reality of heaven? Do you believe you're going to go there? Do you believe that that's so far in the distance that you just don't need to think about it or focus on it? No. So if, if it's a reality, last time I checked, numbers are still the same, right? So maybe you got some better statisticians in here than me. But last time I checked, 10 out of every 10 people are still dying. Everybody dies, right? Unless we're the generation that goes up in the rapture, death is a part of life, right? So you're going to die. I know you don't like to talk about that. 
Oh, that's rude. Whatever. No, I'm just kidding. You're going to die. Some people don't. You know, they get all, they get all twisted about it. I'm like, I, I look forward to it. I think it's cool. When I die, guess what happens? I get a new body. I, I get to be like Jesus. I get to see Jesus for the first time. My wife hates me talking about it because sometimes I joke maybe too far about it. And she doesn't like it. But it's the truth. Like, I, it's an upgrade. Because the, the other concept about this life that, that the Bible teaches for you and I, that if we would keep our head in the clouds, the Bible says that this life is a tent. And this life you're just passing through. How many of you guys live this life like it's a tent and you're passing through? How many of you guys go camping? I've given this illustration before, right? You guys go camping? Tent camping? Nobody tent camps anymore, right? One brave soul. Yeah, I don't need a tent. I just lay on the floor. Okay, well, how many of you guys go tent camping and you take a Rembrandt or the most expensive, beautiful piece of furniture in your house, the most diamond-studded jewels that you have, and you decorate your tent with a Rembrandt or diamond jewels. Who does that? Why? Yeah, because it's a tent. You're only going to stay in it for a week, a day, a night, and hope the ants don't crawl up your pants while you're there. And you don't, you don't invest in it because it's a tent. Where does the Rembrandt go? Where do the diamonds go? Where do the fancy um, artifacts go? You have them in the house where you live, where your life is. And that's the concept that Paul gives us, that we live this life like it's temporary. Now, again, what I'm trying to do is, is just verse one through four again, read it, meditate on it. But basically in a nutshell, keep your mind on heaven. One day you're going to stand before Jesus. That's a reality. What do you want to happen on the day you stand before Jesus? Are you guys going to breathe your last, you believe? And, and it's, it's reality, it's truth. It's just hard to focus on it. I get it. I get it. Sometimes it's, it's, I got enough to worry about to get through this sermon. I got enough to worry about to get through this afternoon. I got enough to worry about that I don't have to watch Tom Brady win another Super Bowl. Like, I got enough trouble, like, right here. I don't need, if he wasn't a cheater, I wouldn't mind so much, you know? But I guess it's true, right? If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. I get it, right? I'm down. Like, I, I, I think it's true. If you ain't cheating, you ain't trying. But anyways, like, I know I have enough to worry about right now. So it's harder to worry about something that's a little harder to grasp. But God's word and God's wisdom, he's saying, look, grasp it. Get a hold of it. Put your mind in heaven. And if you set your mind in heaven, it completely changes. And that day that you stand before Jesus, it's going to go down something like this. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Those treasures that he tells you to store up in heaven, guess what you're going to do with them? You're going to be holding them. You're, you're, you're going to be presenting them the day you stand before Jesus. And this is what motivates me as a believer. I believe that day's a reality. And on that day, when I see Jesus for the first time, I don't want to be there empty handed. I don't want to be there naked. I don't want to be there with a bunch of excuses. Oh, I had to work a lot of hours. Oh, I had to do this. I had to do that. Oh, I was disobedient here. And I, I really wanted to tell people about Jesus and make disciples, but I, I didn't have the gifts or I didn't have the skills or, you know, excuse, excuse. And I don't know what they are. I don't know what yours is. Just insert yours and I'll insert mine. But at the end of the day, when I stand before Jesus on that, re, on that day of reality, I just want to offer something. Even for me, I'm serious. Even if it's like piddly, even if it's not a lot, I can say, I, I, did, I tried, Jesus. Like, this is what I have for you. I have something. So I want to be standing there like, well... I would have brought you something, but, you know, 
I want to offer him something. I want to give him something in this life. You know, if you think about right now, you think, and this is just an analogy. I'm not picking on your money. I'm not picking on anything that you have. Please don't take it that way. But if I have a thousand dollars and I go out and it's very fine to do these things and I go buy me a new waterbed because I just have to have a waterbed or I go out and I buy like some paisley, beautiful thousand dollar wallpaper and wallpaper my kitchen. Or if I take that $1,000 and I offer it to the Lord and I go buy shoes for kids that, that, that walk around without shoes, poor kids in Honduras. Now, now, both decisions are totally cool. Again, please, if you bought a brand new truck yesterday or something, don't, don't, I'm not talking to you, okay? I, I, I mean, I just, it, it's okay. I'm saying we do those things in life. It's cool. If you got new wallpaper yesterday, but the reality is, the truth is, that day that I'm standing before Jesus... I have that. I have those shoes that I gave the kids in Honduras in my hands. I have that. I have it. It's just, it's just a reality. The truck, the wallpaper, the whatever. It's not there. And so we, we, we make decisions, not all of them again, but we make decisions. Now, some of you guys have already seen this, but just, just for the sake of those that have done this before that, that haven't. This, this is an illustration. It's called an eternity rope. Okay. So I want you to imagine that this represents um, your, your life. Okay. So this little black part is the 70, 60, 80 years that you'll live here on planet earth. And then this is right here where it turns black to green. That's where you die and you enter eternity. And then you live all of this in eternity with heaven because the Bible eternity is eternity, right? There's no end to it. So, so all this, and and it just keeps going. I think it stops like in the toilet or something, but just pretend (laughs) That the back end just is, goes on and on and on and on and on around the world and no, no end. That, that's how long you're going to live. It's still coming. All right, I don't want to find the end. Then you'll know there's an end. But this is all of eternity. And this is the 70 years you live here on earth. And we say, oh, I'm going to work really, really hard and this, this, save all my money. I'm not going to do anything for the Lord because I'm busy and I'm going to really save it up so that right about here at about 50, when do you retire? 63? That if I got enough health and I'm not in diapers that I can, um, I can get me a motor home and I can go to Niagara Falls and travel the world and I can, I can do this and this and this. And really? And then, and then people that live like Jeremy Bear, our missionary, Jeremy Bear is a kid who was very similar to myself and Lydia. He was a pastor of a local church in Ogden, a Calvary Chapel, a church about twice the size of ours. Things going well, doing, you know, good stuff for Jesus. And, and he tells his, his church family and his church, he announces to his church, and he announces to his family that's very LDS that he's leaving the church and he's going and moving his family of five to um, Hungary in Europe to, to be the director of the Calvary Chapel Bible College in Europe. And his family says to Jeremy, they say, oh, well, that's really cool, man. That, they think like, oh, that kind of sounds important. Like Calvary Chapel, Bible College, Europe, the director, European, Europe campus, you know, like, oh, this guy's moving up in the world. All right. You know, and then his, and his family says, well, how, how much are they going to pay you for this really cool job you're going to take in Europe? And Jeremy says, well, they don't pay me. I pay them. Now, what? Yeah, yeah. No, they don't pay me. They don't pay me a dollar. Like I have to go to churches and raise support and work extra hard and, and God's got to show up and I got to save a bunch of money and take the money that I have in savings and I got to give them my money. I got to buy my own plane tickets. I got to pay to live in the house so I can work for them. 
crazy concept to the world that doesn't know God. And his family's freaking out. They say, you're crazy. You're stupid. Who does that? Here's what I say. Jeremy's not stupid. Jeremy's living for this. They're stupid because they're living for this. And guess what happens right here with all your stuff? You don't take it with you. And that's why Jesus said, that's why Jesus said, store up for yourself treasures in heaven. And that's the concept of eternal perspective. It's, it's a life that, it, it's an idea where you live with that reality. Now, why don't we do it? Why don't we do what Jeremy did? And, and, and God, if God's not called you to go to Hungary or Africa and be a missionary, don't, don't leave here upset today or feeling bad as a Christian. Because God's not called you there. Then don't go. You're okay. Relax. Stay where you are. Do what God's called you to do. Be faithful to what God's called you to do. Okay? That's not the point. The point is not we all go become missionaries. But the point is definitely that we live for eternity and, and we keep that eternity in perspective. So that's the first four verses. That almost took up half my time. And I got a lot to cover today because I'm talking about sin. Okay. Um, so keep your mind on heavenly things. Focus on eternity. Okay, second part now. Paul says, once you've done that, once you've focused on eternity, and since you died to that old person, since you're no longer alive in there, there's a list of things that Paul wants you to put off. Now, what's interesting is that Paul doesn't really give us a prescription of how to put them off. He simply says, put off. In the last service, I said, I want you to look at chapter three, and I want you to find where Paul tells you how to put off. And a bunch of people are like, and I waited a minute, and I'm like, you can stop looking, it's not there. I was just kidding. Like, it's not there. He doesn't tell you how to put off. He simply says, put off, put on. I do have some ideas that are biblical on how to do this, but the reality is that, that part of this is just something that you do. It's a biblical concept. Now, Paul says in verse number um, five, therefore put to death your members. Now, another biblical concept of sin in your life you have to understand is that, is that nowhere in the Bible does the Bible want you or does God allow you to make provision for your sin, to scale down your sin, to take your sin to therapy because it's not your fault, to whatever you want to do with your sin. The prescription that Jesus gave that Paul gives here, Paul uses some aggressive words. He says, put to death. Jesus even more so said, if your eye causes you to sin, what are you supposed to do with it? Pluck it out. That's violent. That's ugly. He said, if your right hand causes you to sin, do what with it? Cut it off. That's violent. That's, that's, that's aggressive language that Jesus used to deal with sin. Why? I mean, sin starts in the heart. And the reality is, if I'm, if I'm struggling with lust, and, and, I, and, I, and I, you pluck out my right eye, guess what I'm going to do with my left eye? Yeah. I, the problem is still in my heart. So obviously, Jesus is not... But he's using very strong language to, to give us a biblical prescription for sin in our life that has cut it out. And I know it because I've lived it. I've tried to take sin and things in my life that, that, that were wrong. And I've tried to, rather than just completely stop and cut them out and die. Another place, Paul uses some language and he says, crucify the flesh. Crucify the, 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 flesh, the, the flesh of sin in your life. Put it to death. Kill it. And I've tried to control it. I've tried to manage it. And guess what happens? It controls me. It manages me. Never works. 
And the prescription is at the, at the onset for all these things is to put him to death. And he says, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanliness, passion, evil desires, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he's going to go on with another list in a minute. But at the, at the beginning of the list is the word fornication. It's a sexual sin. The word fornication in the Greek is pornea. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It's where we get our English word porn from or pornography. Theography is, is how you film it or stills in the day. Um, but it's, it's porn, basically. That's what the word fornication is. The dictionary definition, the Greek definition, the English de- definition of this word here, it's the, it's the Strong's Greek word, 4022. It means the same thing. It means any sex outside of sin. If you read the de- definition, it'll say homosexual, bisexual, lesbian, animals, um, any sex outside of marriage is in this list. And it's sin. And it leads the, it leads the list. Now, there's a reason why um, the Bible in, in the New Testament especially puts an onus on sexual sins. Number one, the Bible says that it's a sin against your own body. And that it does seem to take precedence and it does seem to be more important and more costly for those that commit that sin. And lots of warning. Do you guys remember in Acts chapter 15, one of the things the early church was dealing with, and again, you have to remember that the early church came out of Judaism, right? We were born. That's what this means right here. This means that Christianity was born out of Judaism. It's the same thing that's on that thing back there. And it's Romans chapter 11 is that we were, we came from Judaism and without Judaism, there's no Christianity. And, And so, so there was a transition period where they rightfully followed God according to the, the law of Moses. And then Jesus dies on the cross. John the Baptist is the last one of those guys. So somewhere in that little period, folks that lived in that area, they didn't live like you and I. They didn't just born under one system and die under one system. They were born under one testament and died under another one. And they had to shift somewhere in the middle. And, and so there was this struggle in the early church. So in Acts 15, they got together and they said, hey, how are we going to deal with this? And, and they got together because some people said, oh, you have to be circumcised and you have to do this and you have to do that. And they said, no, 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 no. Keep it simple. It's not what God wants. And, and, and what the, 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 the council in Acts 15 came out with was basically two simple things. Don't worship idols. And the second one, refrain from sexual immorality. Two really important things to the church. Okay. And, and, and there's more to this list than just fornication, but it heads the list. So I had to be careful, um, you know, how much I, I want to get into today with it. But basically the Bible talks about when a husband and wife come together and the Bible never uses the word sex. The Bible always uses the word. What is, how did Adam and his wife, what, what is, how does God use to describe what Adam and his wife did? They knew each other to know him that Adam knew his wife. And the two became one flesh. So it's an intimacy that God created. Only between a husband and a wife does the Bible say that two people literally become one flesh. Husbands and um, sons, mothers and daughters, sisters have wonderful relationships this side of the cross. But only two people become one flesh. And that happens in sexual intimacy. Because spiritually, sex is not just solely a physical act. It's a spiritual act that God created. And intimacy literally, physically, spiritually, actually ties two souls together. And when you have somebody who's, who's very promiscuous in, uh, with multiple sex partners, they're tied to all those people. And then anybody else that they're sleeping with gets joined in that. 
You know, you think of somebody, you know, in, in certain circles of promiscuity, Rahab was a harlot. And all them evil men that would come in and all the evil spirits that they would bring in and they would join to Rahab and then anybody else who would come in and join to those spirits. Now I use Rahab as an example because God redeemed her and healed her and forgave her, which is possible. Not only that, but she went on and she married somebody and, and lived a respectable life and had a child that had a child that had a child that had a child that was Jesus. She becomes the great, 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 like 22 more times grandmother of Jesus. So she went on and she lived a respectable life. But, but the, the point being that that's why. And listen, God wants to bless your life. That's what people don't understand. That's what drives me absolutely crazy with this whole thing. And myself included. God wants to bless you. God wants to love you. He wants to give you everything that you desire in your heart. He doesn't want to, he, he has no pleasure in disciplining you. He has no pleasure in you missing out on the things that he has for you. And it's like he has this huge treasure. And he says, but I got it for you right here. And you go, no, I got a pile of boogers. I want this more. And, and, and that's what it's like. And these, these sins against our own body, that's why it says it's a sin against your own body. And it's a big deal. And, 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 and six other times in the New Testament, you go find it. Paul says, those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, for those of you that don't believe in hell or don't like to talk about hell because it's offensive, what does it mean when the Bible says you won't inherit the kingdom of God? Now, now you can decide, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not no, judging nobody's salvation. I personally just wouldn't want to live in that place where I'm not sure or, or, or that I'm living in that list. Now, there's the, now, the Bible makes it clear that those who practice such things, because I think at some point, myself included, have been guilty of, of these sins. And I'm not going to hell. I know that I know that I know I'm going to heaven. But I don't practice those things. I don't habitually commit those things. I did. I got right with God. I repented. He forgave me. I'm moving on. And that's the difference. Somebody who just continually practices that sin unrepentant, that, that defines that difference when Paul says, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on and he says, um, uncleanliness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, real quick, um, uncleanliness, it can mean a physical uncleanliness. Um, and just... And it can also mean, you know, the Jews had laws of uncleanliness in their, in their physical bodies. And it can mean um, a, in the spiritual sense of, of lust, of, of idolatry, of just being unclean spiritually. And then passion, the, 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 de the definition of passion in the Greek, I like it because it says, you know, anything that um, is good or bad or sad. Because I think like we think of passions like you're passionate about something. Paul says, put them away if they're not of Christ. If they're not in Christ, if they're not Christ first in your life, you're really, really, really passionate about cars. And it consumes your life. And your self-identity self is in cars. You're really, 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 really passionate about a bad football team called the Raiders. And that, that's your, your passion about that thing. You know, and so you, but if it gets in the way of Christ, or I'm really passionate about you know, dogs on the streets of Africa. I'm really passionate about the whales, 
you know, that are getting slaughtered. And, you know, and if these passions are not of Christ, Paul says, get some way. But what's interesting is he says, and, and I think it's important, he says, it also could cover areas of, that are not good necessarily, sadness. Why? Because some of us, we, we cling to sadness in our life. We cling to tra- tragedy in our lives and we make it our passion and it's everything we're passionate about, this thing that's so sad and so terrible to us. God says, get over it. It's a passion that gets in the way of me. Whether it's good or bad, it's all included under this topic that Paul says to put away in passion. And then he says, um, of covetousness, which is idolatry. The, the, the main thing about covetousness, now if we understand what covet means, covet means to desire something that you can't afford, desire something that somebody else has, and you're always discontent with what you, what you have, hoping that you, you can have what somebody else has, okay? So, you know, how does covetousness happen? You get a magazine, you know, um, you see something that you, you have to have, you always want something, you watch a commercial, you see a cartoon, you know, I get the East Bay magazines with all the new Nikes that come out to my house. And, like, I haven't seen one, like, in six months. And I'm like, I haven't seen my East Bays. Wait, Lydia, you know anything about that? <laughs> she throws them away when they come because, you know, every time I, get, I look at the Nike, and I don't even need shoes. I got so many shoes, I don't have to do with them. And I, but I'm looking through the new, the new Nikes that are coming out, and I see a pair of J's I have to have. And so she, but it's good. I'm glad. I, don't, I didn't give her a hard time because, really, it is. It's a problem. Like we, we see things, we covet, we have to have things that we don't need, we don't want. But the problem with covetousness and why God doesn't want it for your life is because it just makes us happy with what we do have, unhappy with what we do have. And we're never content. And God doesn't want you that way. And again, this list, you guys, it, it, God wants to bless your life. He wants you to be happy. He wants what's best for you. That's what's so heartbreaking. He wants what's best for us. And, and these things are going to cause those things. And I like what he's going to say in a minute here. And he says, because of these things, the wrath of God, verse 5, is coming. Somebody say, is coming. Upon, I'm sorry, which, I'm sorry, ra- upon the sons of disobedience. Now, now, girls in here, that's you too. Okay, so don't think when he says the sons of disobedience, he's just talking about these stinky boys that are around here. Now, if, if girls are sometimes where you have to be the sons of God or the sons of disobedience, and that's all right, as I pointed out last week, sometimes us men, we have to be the bride of Christ. And so this is for all of us. But listen, the wrath is coming. That means that the wrath of God is yet future. And I want to be really clear when it talks about the wrath. God's wrath, you've not seen God's wrath. You think, oh, I've committed one of these sins and this bad stuff's happened to me. It's God's wrath. Oh, please. Get over yourself. Are you serious? You want to see what wrath is? Go read Revelation chapter 5, um, Revelation chapters 5 through 19. You want to see the wrath of God? A third of the world population dies. Hailstones the size of VWs are coming down. Men are getting stung with the, with the paralyzing and they want to blow their brains out and they can't because the, the, they, they're, just, they're paralyzed and they're in torment. Demons going around the world. Earthquakes, nuclear wars. That's God's wrath. Hasn't happened yet. So then what do I experience then as a result of these sins? You, you, you experience the... The, the reaction to your own action. There's a natural reaction to these things. You know, God, God has put things in place that are going to cause trouble in your life. But he's not his wrath. Oh, I committed one of these sins and then God has to come down and, and, and put something in front of you to judge you. It doesn't work that way. 
God put laws in motions, and then he warns you. Same way you would with your kids. You know, your teenage daughters come home, and you, you warned them, and you told them some things, and now they're emotionally hurt. They're, they're busted up and, and they're th- because they made bad decisions. And now the result of them being hurt, is that you punishing them? That's a result of the decision they made that you told them not to do in the first place because you love them and you want what's best for them. And, and so the result of these sins in your life, in my life, it's not God punishing you. That day is going to come. And for those that live this lifestyle unrepentant, if they don't repent before it's time, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God and they're going to see the wrath, the real wrath of God. And so today is the day, but put off these things and those things are yet future. And then in verse seven, it says, in which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So this idea, again, verse seven, that you once walked, it's again, it's a biblical concept that we see over and over again. It's who we used to be. And I, and I would say for maybe a lot of us who are walking with the Lord that, yeah, we, we once committed these things. We once walked in this. And basically the concept or the idea is this, that's who you used to be. So make a difference of who you are. You used to do those things. That's, that's who you used to be, but don't do them anymore on this side of the cross. Are you a Christian? Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? You know, before you were a believer in Jesus Christ, you sit around the table at work and everybody tells, you know, dirty jokes with, you know, uh, all these foul stories. And you sit there and you listen to them and you tell your own. And now you become a Christian, you go back to the table, you do the same thing. You know, you go, you go to the parties and you do certain things at the parties with your friends before you became a Christian. And then after you become a Christian, you go and you do those same exact things. Are, are, you, are you any different? Can the world tell you're any different? Nobody can tell you're any different. It's a bad witness. And Paul says you used to be those things. And the whole idea, remember we talked about last week, is dead and alive. And most new believers are going to face this. You become a Christian, you get Jesus, you, you, you want to start walking right. And then what happens? Like, I wasn't as popular before I became a Christian. Now, all of a sudden, for whatever reason, that's like the leaning tower. For whatever reason, now my phone's blowing up with all these invites to the party. You know, and, and it's like, oh, no, I don't want to go. And I can do that for a while. Oh, I just don't want to go. And tell somebody, you know, what's wrong with you? You don't hang out anymore. And finally, you got you to tell them, oh, I'm a Christian now because you're afraid of what they're going to say. You know, the, the reality is that you, you, you're not the same person. I saw this one where it was an, it was an invitation to a party, a cake party. Somebody became a Christian about two months, and they wanted an uh, RSVP, and so they wrote back on the invitation, I won't be able to make it to the party because I died. But not to worry, I'm alive in Christ. But, but that person is not here anymore. And that's the concept, is that that's not who we are anymore. And we can't live that way. There has to be a difference. We're dead to those things. And then in verse number eight, he says, but now you yourselves are to put off these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy. So anger is um, just the characteristic. Anger is a part of your character. You're mad all the time. Things bother you easily. You know, your family's not sure. Like your family like has a stick and they stand away and they touch you with it and see how you react before they get in the room with you. And if... If it's safe, then they can come in because that's a characteristic of anger that you have. Paul says, put it off. And then wrath, it's, it seems similar in malice, but wrath is a little bit different. Maybe you're not, I, I don't think I deal with anger. I don't think I'm an angry person. I think I'm, I'm probably on the opposite end of that scale. But wrath, I definitely have wrath. I, I struggle with wrath. You can ask my boys. I got three teenage boys and, and I, I sometimes blow up at them and regret it. I wrath on them. I say things to them. You know, I bark really immediately and loudly. 
Like five minutes later, I'm honestly, honestly not mad at him. And I don't have anger against him. But that's wrath. It's, it's these explosions and something I got to deal with. It's something I got to get better at. And, and then malice is like a whole nother level of anger and wrath. Malice is like where, you know, you wish a rock would fall on a big, huge hailstone would fall on their car, maybe their head. And then you would just laugh and enjoy it and hope you had it on video because you would enjoy their, their, their demise. And you have real ill will in your heart towards somebody. It's not a characteristic that a Christian's to have. And again, don't make excuses for these things. God is calling you. God is telling you to get rid of anger. You're an angry person. You deal with anger. Am I picking on you today? Or is it what the word of God says? It's what the word of God teaches. So deal with it. It says wrath. If you have wrath problems, that's me. I got to deal with it. If you have malice problems and, and you really are the type of person that you just hang on to things and you really, really wish bad things would happen to other people, stop. Why? Because God decided one day that those things were sin and, and he would punish you if you did them. Is that why? It has nothing to do with it. God doesn't punish you for those things. You punish yourself. Those, those things make you, make you ill. They make you sick. Health-wise, science proves that, that those feelings and those thoughts, they do something in your insides that, that, that prevents you from staying and being healthy all the time. Sick all the time? Maybe it has nothing to do with germs. Maybe it has to do with the intellect. Maybe it has to do with your anger and your wrath and your malice and your bitterness that just creates in you an unhealthy environment in your body. It's scientific. But God cares for you and he loves you. And what's the whole point? God wants to bless you. God wants what's best for you. And these things are not what's best for his children. How many of you guys as parents want absolutely what's best for your children? Right? It's an easy concept to understand. And, and God wants what's best for you. And these things are not best for you. And so he says, get rid of them. And then he says, um, another list in, in verse number nine, do not lie to one another. Right? I missed the verse in the eight. Oh, anger, wrath, malice. I missed a couple. Filthy language out of your mouth was the last one in verse eight. So real simply, filthy language is cursing. Okay. You know, I, I, I ministered upon a, a, aboard a Marine base for 15 years with lots of Marines and lots of Christian Marines. And, and oftentimes, you know, the Christian Marines would, would tell me, oh, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. They wouldn't cuss around me, but readily admit that it's okay when they're around their men and that's just the, the culture they're in. And, and I challenge them sometimes. Well, it says right here, put it away. I think you can do what you, I think you could do your job without cursing. I think you could do your job without yelling. They didn't like that. <laughs> but I said, don't you think it's like, don't you think it would be more commanding and more respectful if you could get those Marines to do what you told them to do in this voice, hey man, you better get over there and get that done. As opposed to rah, 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 rah. Like anybody will like be afraid of that. Like, but I think if you're, I think you're really cool. I think you're really commanding if you could do it in a whisper and your guys start jumping to attention. Try that, you know, but you, um, but again, God, God wants us to put it away. So uh, again, we make excuses. Oh, I'm angry. Why, why are you angry? Because I'm Italian. It's in my blood. It's in my veins. You ain't Italian. You're Christian. That's what Paul's going to say in a minute. Oh, why, why do you curse so much? Because I'm a Marine. You're not a Marine. You're a Christian. First, then you're a Marine. You're a Christian first, then you're Italian. And, and so um, then he says, verse number nine, real, real, real tough concept to understand in verse nine. So I'm really going to try to help us unpack this one. He says, do not lie to one another. I know that's hard to understand for some of you. No, actually, if I'm being honest, and I don't have time because my clock's ticking away, um, you know, uh, the idea of lying simply, God wants you to be honest. 
you know, and we could talk about, you know, the reality of what this means. And here's just the bottom line for lying. Every time you lie, I forget what it is, but you have to tell like five lies to cover up the lie that you told. And then what happens is you spin such a web because it starts to multiply that eventually you've told a hundred lies. And you know what the problem with telling a hundred lies is? You can only remember about 65 of them. So then you forget what you lied about and then people catch you in the lies because you say something different the next time because it's not truth. Now, truth is something that your mind maintains and and your memory um, uh, remembers. So you know why you're consistent in telling the truth because your mind remembers. But when you make up a story in a week, you may forget what you made up. And then, and then here's the biggest problem our bigger problem for us lying. And something I try to really instill in my boys about lying is that if you lie and you get caught the next time, people don't believe you. And, and if you, and if you get a reputation of somebody who will lie, then, then even if you're telling the truth, people won't believe you. And I'll tell you, one of the hardest things, right, to deal with is, you know, if I'm telling the truth and I really mean it, something sincere and like, I'm trying to tell you the truth and and you you just don't believe me, that's hurtful. But that's my own fault. If I've set you up or I've told lies and now you don't have any reason to believe me. So I tell the boys, don't get to that point where your mom and I can't believe what you say because you'll be telling us the truth and we won't believe you, but it won't be our fault. It'll be your fault because that's why Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no be no. What does that mean? That means you tell the truth. And if, and if I know your yes is yes and no and no, whether I like it or not, whether it gets you in trouble or not, no matter what, then at least I know you're telling the truth because your yes is yes and your no is no. And that's what Jesus meant. And then when folks come to you, they trust you. They know you're telling the truth, even if they don't like it, whatever it is. And, and, and you're not the end up becoming the boy who cried wolf. And so, you know, again, don't make excuses. Put it off, as Paul says in verse 9. And have put on a new man who is renewed, in verse 10, with the knowledge according to him, the image of him who created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So basically, just the sum of verse 11 is what I already talked about, is the idea is that I... You know, I'm, a, I'm an Italian and I have a bad temper or I'm this and I'm that. We make excuses for the sins that are in this list. And that's what Paul says in this group. Listen, no, we're, we're, we're Christians first. Before you're anything else, you self-identify as a Christian. And as a Christian, you lose all those excuses. You lose all the reasons not to be obedient to what the word of God says. You know, I, I mean, yo, I have, uh, but you don't know me. Like, I, I really have a struggle for, for, for women or I really have a struggle for, for this or that. No, you're a Christian first, and we all have the same struggle, and that's an excuse, and you have to, you know, you don't have an excuse. You have to be and do and put it off. Now, I'm going to give you some ideas of how to put off in a minute. Um, I won't just leave you in that, although Paul did in this chapter. He didn't give you a ton of instructions. He just said, do it. And we, we are almost done. And he says in verse 12, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, you know, one of, the, one of the most simplest concepts for Christians that would, I think, really change a lot of our lives. And the Bible says it multiple times. Paul hits on it. I like the one in Philippians. He just says, be kind one to another. And here he says, put on kindness. Do you realize how much better your, your Christianity would be if you just put on kindness? If you're just kind to people, got rid of the anger and the malice and the wrath and just were, were kind. Now, God doesn't tell us here in this chapter how we put on or put off. But I can't leave without unpacking this idea really quickly. So um, 
you know, number one, it, it tells us, one of my favorite places, it tells us that um, to walk in the spirit and we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh in the idea of how do I put on and put off. You walk in the spirit. What does that mean? You do spiritual things. You read your Bible, you pray, you spend time with Jesus. You, you're constantly filling your life with spiritual things. And as a result, you don't have to think about the sin. I don't focus on the sin I'm struggling with. I just focus on doing spiritual things. And then before I know it, oh, wait, wait, wait. I forgot to sin. I forgot that I had that problem over there. I just didn't do it today because I was so busy with all these other spiritual things. That's part of it. You walk in the spirit and you don't fulfill the deeds of the lust. You know, in John 15, Jesus said along those same lines, abide in Christ. So you, you remain in Jesus. Now, this idea of put on and put off. God wants you to put on kindness. Well, then won't I be a put on? Won't I be a phony? Well, what, what if it's not real? Are you supposed to just put it on anyways? What if it's not what's really in your heart? What if you're just really not a kind person? Does God want you to put it on anyways? Or does he want you to be yourself? Honest question. You put it on anyways. He don't want you to be yourself if you're a jerk. He doesn't want you to be yourself if you're mean. I'm serious. He wants you to put on kindness. He wants you to put on something that's not really you. Think, oh, then I'll be a phony. Don't, am, I, am, I, am I not supposed to be a hypocrite? Now listen. He doesn't tell you how. He just says do it. Put it off. It's like a jacket. Take it off. Put something else on. And that's who you become. Put it on and it will become you. Do you, you know in acting... You know what they say about actors who put on the most amazing role on screen that you've ever seen, the most believable thing you've ever seen? They are so the character. They are so good. They so nailed it. You know what they say about those actors? Nobody's that good. And you know what the truth is about those actors? Nobody is that good. Do you know why? It's impossible. So how do they do it? Do you, do you, know, how, do you know how Heath Ledger put on the role of Joker in Batman? One of the most amazing performances, believable performances as, as a character on screen ever. For months and months and months, you know what he did? He put on the Joker. He got into the character of Joker months and months before taping began. And he never came out. 24 hours a day, seven days a week, he put on Joker. He was Joker in his real life leading up to the filming. Until the filming was done, he never came out of character. It's a, it's a craft. It's a skill that they do. Jim Carrey did it when he played Lodka in the, the he made a remake of the, of Lodka, the, the guy from Taxi. Jim Carrey played the role of Lodka after Lodka died. Jim Carrey did the same thing and they all, they all do it. But Jim Carrey did the same thing and he became Lodka for about a six month period of his life and lived it 24 hours a day, seven, his family, his friends, his wife, they would never come out of character. You know what happened to Heath Ledger? Heath Ledger, when it was all over, he, he was having a hard time coming out of the role of Joker. And, and so he started taking medication to sleep at night. And he started taking um, different medications and mixtures of medications to help himself come back to being Heath Ledger and stop being Joker. And he was having a really hard time coming out of his role. And because he was on a bunch of medications, one night he woke up at 3 in the morning and things weren't right. And he opened his pill bottles and took some more pills. And he had an overdose, I believe an accidental overdose trying to come out of the role of Joker and died. But, but th that, that is really, I mean, that's the way the devil does it. I'm not trying to, but in Christ, that is the idea. You put something on. You know, Cary Grant, you know what Cary Grant was known for? I don't, I'm way too young, but somebody will tell me. What was Cary Grant known for? He was debonair. He was suave. 
He, was, he did 70 Hollywood movies. Came from somewhere in the slums in, in, um, in England. And they asked Cary Grant, have you always been so debonair and so suave? And he laughed at the question. And he, he was a kid from not a great neighborhood and didn't grow up rich. And he said, no, he said, I, I wanted to be somebody. He said, so I put on a fancy coat at one point and I just started living that like that, pretended. And then and all of a sudden it became me. And that was a true story of Cary Grant. He became the most debonair, suave character and personality in Hollywood. And, and, and that concept is what God wants for you. So yeah, no, if you, it's not who you are, you put it on anyways. You put it on. And people say, sometimes they say, how? Last thing and then we're done. How? 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 You know what how is? Nobody? Thank you. How's an excuse? How's an excuse? You know, I had a conversation, honest conversation with a brother. And he was telling me about the part where Paul says you have to forgive. And he was telling me about what somebody's doing in his life and somebody's doing to him. And I'm like, oh, I get it. Like, that, that's, that's hard. That's terrible with what's going on. I understand that you're having a hard time forgiving this person. He said, how can I do it? He's like, I don't feel it. I don't want to. And then he told me the details. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. He said, how do I do it? And I said, not how, just now. Just do it. He says, put on, put off. Sometimes, how, how many of you guys have the annual, or not the annual, because I mean, we don't have kids in sixth grade every year or whatever, but you get that project come home from school, usually in sixth grade, right? And it's, it's assigned to the parents. It's the sixth grade science project, <laughs> right? And you know you got to do that sixth grade science project. And the, the week it comes home, you're like, you don't want to do it. Your daunting task. You're like, you know, if you're like me, you're like, it's been like 12 years since I've been in the sixth grade. Like, I forget, you know, I don't want to do that. And, you know, but then what happens? Like you, you finally, you get out the papers and you tackle it. And, and now when it's done and it's ready to turn in and it's on the trifold, it's actually kind of cool. You're proud of it. You got your pictures and like you tackled it and you didn't want to in the beginning, but as you jumped in, things just happened, right? And, and, and in God, when he tells us to do these things in chapter three of Colossians, it's not the, it's not the now, it's the, or it's not the how, it's the now, just do it. And, and, and then when you add God's economy, listen, God's going to show up. God's going to show up in those areas of forgiveness, of putting off, of putting on. And when you add God's economy to it, it's going to work in your life. So stop making excuses. Don't ask me how. Don't ask God how, just now. Step out and step out in faith and start doing the things that God tells you to do and you'll see victory. You'll see a, you'll see a, a, a grade A science fair at the end of the week. It'll come together, amen? Amen, let's stand. Thank you guys so much for your patience. I tried to cover most of a whole chapter today. I don't know how well we did, but we covered some good stuff today. Practical stuff, you know, a lot of teaching today. So, you know, again, the, the chapter deals with sin. And if there's a sin in your life that's besetting, if there's a sin in your life that is in that list or not in that list, uh, God is calling you today. God is calling you today to put it off and and then take the list of, of put on and be a put on. Put on the things that Christ wants you to put on and wear those things in your life and become that. And as you put it on, you become it. So I'm going to pray for you today. Then uh, we'll go ahead and just let you guys go home and get your day started. Um, So I will not invite the worship team up today. Let's just pray and we'll let you guys go today to your wild Super Bowl parties where you're going to commit debauchery and sin. And (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) What you do today is between you and God. I'm just kidding. Just don't come to my house because I'm just kidding.
I'm digressing. I should pray. Somebody's like, hurry up and pray. It's getting bad. Let's pray. Let me pray for you guys. Father God, we come before you and we, Lord Jesus, we, we do love you. We do thank your word, Father, and thank you for your word, God. And Lord, we, t- we dealt with some real topics today. We dealt with the areas of sin. And Lord, just the severity, that, that we would treat this thing severely. We'd stop making excuses for our sin. Lord, we'd stop making excuses for our sexual sins. We'd stop making excuses for um, our anger, our malice, our wrath, our covetousness, our blasphemies, our gossip, our, our, our ill will towards other people. And God, that we would, we would put those things to death. We would annihilate them. We would cut them off. We would pluck them out. God, that you'd help us do that. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you didn't leave us with just these commandments that, that with no help. You sent the Holy Spirit. And if we step out in faith, we will have victory over those things in Jesus' name. And your desire is to bless us. And God, as we put on kindness and lovingness and gentleness, and as Paul says in, in, in that chapter, that above all this, put on love. Because love is the one that will help us be kind. And love is the one that will help us be gentle. And love is the one that will help us be generous. And love is the one that covers the rest. And so God, as your people, help us to put on love. And Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you. And um, just focus on Jesus and abiding in him and walking in the spirit. And we will not fulfill the deeds of the flesh. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.